0: G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing just a reminder again that we are doing this recording not in the studio so sometimes the quality of, of the sound isn't quite what we would like so our apologies there but we're doing the best that we can The good news is is that with the software that we do have, we can continue to put out new recordings or new interviews every week, which is our intention throughout the summer, rather than replaying one from before, which is still good. It's just sometimes we like to have the new ones out there, and particularly with everything else that's going on in the world right now. What better way than to get some new information and and what better place than from listening to our grad students about their research. So today I'd like to introduce you to Martina Palahimo, who is doing a PhD in human geography under the supervision of Dr. Heather Castledon. Welcome to Grad Chat, Martina.
1: Hi, Colette. Thank you very much.
0: Now, it's interesting when Martina got on, she was a little bit nervous, but she's not going to be by the end of this. <laughs> and I, I actually I find that with a lot of our grad students, which is the, the nice thing about doing grad chat. It's, it's a great opportunity for our students to get rid of some of those nerves and realize that they can talk about their work. And because the good thing is they know their work better than us. So um, it's, it's a good opportunity. So is that why you wanted to do this, Martina, to practice?
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe I can think through my ideas is even more just talking about them out loud (laughs) publicly (laughs) and
0: and that's that's a good way of doing it actually because you don't realize do you until because you can write down all sorts of things and you can do all sorts of research but it's it's framing it properly in your mind and being able to speak it sometimes really does help doesn't it
1: Mm it really helps me sometimes to think things through and be like, oh, I actually don't really like that idea and maybe not. I meant to do this idea.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully you find it out earlier rather than later.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Three years left to go.
0: <laughs> Otherwise it's going to be a long PhD. Exactly. But. <laughs> now, the good thing about when you're doing your research, it doesn't matter which direction you go. I mean, it's all worthwhile. I mean, I'm sure you must learn lots of things which you're not going to be able to put into your research, mm-hmm. but you've learned it along the way anyway. And maybe you'll use that a bit later, but, you know, whatever we whatever we find out there, we can always use it somewhere in our lives, can't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get on to your research topic because when I saw this, I went, Awesome. <laughs> so, without letting, making everyone wait too long, your topic is, keeping in mind, of course, uh, Martina's in human geography, the topic is land reconciliation, a new critical geography of peace in the Ecuadorian Amazon, mm-hmm. empowering Shuar resilience and resurgence through two-eyed learning Love that title. (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to get back to you with some extra questions in a minute. But can can you first of all, give us a, a bit of an overview of what your research
1: is? Basically, I've worked for years with an NGO called Global Indigenous Trust, working with oh, right. um, indigenous communities in Canada and in South America around resource development. So I have this pre-existing relationship with the Shuar community in the Ecuadorian Amazon. So they've been asking me to partner with, and work with them on a number of projects. And so basically, I'm trying to navigate away from my PhD research to support their projects and realize their work. So getting to that, and I think, (laughs) which leads me to they have, they've kind of resisted colonization for centuries so like before when the incas were there they resisted and then the spanish conquered kind of so they still have their natural way like their traditional languages and a lot of their traditional knowledge has been preserved and a lot of that too is like living and being in their natural environment and using traditional medicines and traditional knowledge so i wanted a way to understand that and be able to help them preserve that knowledge and also in doing that there is a way where you can work with plants and animals and reinterpret our environment that has been lost in Western knowledge systems. And yes. um, yeah, so I wanted to see how we could kind of explore that in helping them preserve the knowledge and then also maybe creating like a land-based learning course to work on decolonization and providing opportunities for us to engage in that knowledge and then also rebuild our relationships with the natural world.
0: that's a big job that's a huge job isn't it because the trouble with some of these lands as you're clearly finding out some of this beautiful landscape and these peoples who live on these lands and have lived off the lands for thousands of years it's easy for the land to get smaller and smaller as we know because of so-called civilization, if that's the word, I don't know, or moving forward, or then the big mining companies want to come in because they suddenly realize there's all these natural resources. So I'm sure we're going to get into that in a a little bit. But You kind of touched on in the beginning why you want to do it. It was part of what, you know, something you had started before with the NGO and things that you'd worked with. Did that start when you were doing your, like you, because I think you did your bachelor's at Dell and then you did a master's at Trinity. Does it come from that or was it just a natural thing that you, you found yourself leaning towards?
1: It's a bit of both. So I did tree planting in Northern Canada when I was finished my undergraduate, which was in philosophy and environmental studies. So yeah. So my honors thesis there was like looking at how we could extend Kantian and moral ethics to include ethics for the environment. Right. And so then that's where I've in the longer term discovered indigenous relationality and the spirituality and like interconnectedness to that a lot of different indigenous cultures have. And then Yeah, and then I went tree planting up north in Canada and saw just the clear-cut forest. And then there's a lot of reserves up there and then the general treatment of how we were treating the indigenous people in this country. And then I went oh to God. South America and I saw like the same kind what of thing. going on there. Yeah. And I was like, wait a second, this is also happening in South America. Yeah. And there's these big resource development projects. And again, like indigenous communities are right next to them, getting experiencing negative effects. So from there, I did my master's in international peace studies and focused on the conflicts that arise out of these resource development projects specifically in Canada and Brazil. And then with the tar sands and the Chippewaian community, and then in Brazil, yeah, with this big hydroelectric dam called Belo Monte and the Kayapo people. So then I went down to Brazil. I spent some time with the Kayapo. And then from there, I continued to work with Indigenous communities in South America.
0: And I guess this is why you wanted to have Dr. Castledon as your supervisor.
1: Yeah, because she... She's done really interesting work surrounding kind of, I think, the idea I always had in my mind, especially with Two-Eyed Seeing, about promoting, showing the negative effects of development projects or the health impacts on communities, and then also provided a pathway forward for looking, understanding them through Two-Eyed Seeing. So yeah, I thought she would make a really good supervisor and be able to... Inform our research. So, in a good way. so,
0: what kind of things are happening down there in Ecuador with the Shuar people? I, I, I understand. I, th- I went on to Wikipedia. I have to admit, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of cheated—not Mister Google, Mister Wikipedia. <laughs> and you know, for a long time, they were able to keep out the Western Western side of things away from their area. But, like you said, you know, it's not the first time their language and their civil, their their way of living has been tried to be interrupted you know like with the the conquistadors and was it the incas before that
1: yeah i think it was that that's what the choir told me was the incans Mm-hmm. They, and this was just in the particular, like their territory runs from Ecuador to Peru. So the Inca would right. have just been the most power, like powerful back in the day. And But,
0: that, but the, the nice thing is they are still trying to live in their traditional ways, aren't they? Even with everything else that's going on around. And do they have some protection down there right now or not? Is it Does it really depend on the political landscape at the time?
1: So in terms of protection against COVID or against resource development, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: Bit of both, really, isn't it, right now?
1: Yeah. They're actually doing a crowdfunding campaign that I could, if you wanted to share the link, I can send it up for this. Please do. We can stick it up there. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of, that's, and that's the thing too, it's finding that balance of how do you preserve traditional ways of living but still engage in the Western economy, be able to protect your livelihoods. And they are trying to navigate is like that balance between Um, there is a lot of mining, there's a lot of mining interest in their territory. So it's a really um, biologically diverse area. It's like one of the highest biggest hotspots across the world. So yeah, so it's like one of those wonderful places in the Amazon that's been untouched, but there's state led development coming around and different mining and oil interests. So I mean, and it in South America too, there's a lot of death, a risk of death, or like injuries too, just straight from the conflict that happened with resource development as well.
0: Right, right. So, yeah. I, so I guess, I guess one of the questions that we should ask mm-hmm. is why why is working with indigenous peoples in the Amazon, i.e. the Shuar people, important to people in Canada? And how is this related to indigenous issues here? Is there some sort of correlation at all? Or
1: Yeah, so there is a huge correlation in that what indigenous people, what we can learn a lot from what's happened and what's going on currently in Canada, right. that can be helped down there, that can be helpful down there, especially because a lot of the mining companies that are present in the Amazon are Canadian mining companies oh is that right okay Mm -hmm. and so we actually have a huge role in the Amazon resource extraction project so that being said as well just the Amazon is 20% of the world's oxygen and it's got 50% of the most biologically diverse flora and fauna and we know like the UN has come out and say yeah there's this famous quote that I'll read where it's that Although Indigenous people constitute less than 5% of the world's population, they safeguard 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. So they're playing a pivotal role in climate protection, and we know that they are the traditional peoples to those lands, and so they're typically the caretakers and stewards. So if we can help the Indigenous people that are there support their livelihoods, then we can also help support the environment around them as well. Which makes sense. Have you actually been down there? So I, I was supposed to go, I think, in May. To the, to the, yeah, I haven't been to this part of the Ecuadorian Am- Amazon, so I've been meaning to go, and then I was, yeah, gonna go in May just to like fully understand how to develop this. But yes, yeah, so I'm going to go either way. But, yeah, I've only been to the Brazilian Amazon place well so
0: i would i would imagine though when you do get a chance to go down there like when our students are doing research say with um indigenous peoples here in canada there's a certain protocol that you should really go through not just assume it's okay to turn up Mm um is there some sort of protocol and things that you need to go to to make sure that they're okay with you coming to visit and asking questions and also I'm assuming when you go down there you'll be asking them you know what what can I learn from you
1: (laughs) yeah well that that's kind of the whole point too so in terms of protocol it's I chose this project because they keep asking me for help and support number one so and they want me to be partners in the co-creation of knowledge with them so I think what will be pretty clear and what is clear so far in my proposal is that we're going to I'm going to go in to create like an action-based learning project so it's not I'm not just extracting research from them or but that whatever we create the knowledge creation is co-created and it's me asking what can I like what can we learn from you and then how can this Help to kind of shift our lens of the world that like you know shift out of kind of like our western thinking
0: yes which is really really important i mean mm-hmm. we've we've held for the last few years with the uh, four directions indigenous student center some you know research days yeah looking at you know what we should be doing our research should be doing here to ask the right questions with our indigenous peoples of you know don't just assume we know what needs fixing go and ask people's first <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saying, can i help
1: in any way <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> exactly is- and how can i help in the best way yeah. and yeah it kind of exploring because i'm a non-indigenous person or i identify as a non-indigenous person right. so of exploring that allyship and what does that look like and what are all of our ten- intentions and setting those in a good way
0: well, it's good that they've got you there. So, how can exploring the Shuar knowledge of living with their natural environment contribute a, you know, a, a critical geography of peace? And and there's a word that you've used here before, and shape extractive landscapes. What do you mean by extractive landscapes?
1: So, I guess what's going to be interesting to explore here is I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but what I'm interested in learning about from the Shuar is we do, there is this kind of violent culture, especially in South America, around extractive industries, right? There's not only okay. the negative health impacts that come from cancer, the pollution of the natural environment that feeds into the system of communities around these projects, then there's the realistic conflict that arises in death or whatever else, or it's just like their livelihoods are lost from whatever the pollutants that are in the environment so there is this violence that comes with kind of the settler colonial project that is perpetuated through the extractive industry so i wanted to look at and also like there, there's a lot of really great examples of more po- pushing like a positive example of the way that the Shuar people are resisting colonization and how are they utilizing their environment to through ecotourism projects to like engage with other indigenous and non-indigenous people to reconnect to their natural world, to promote their local culture um, and right. living in peace and harmony with the natural world. So in kind of a, a resistance to the mining and extractive um, landscape that's kind of encroaching on their territory.
0: It's interesting you, you're talking about some of these like potential ecotourism as a way of getting around, keeping potentially, you know, these mining companies out Mm-hmm. If, you can, if the, the community can find another way of bringing proving the economy of the country.
1: Mm-hmm. Or um, even just the community, yeah.
0: Or even just the community, yes. But I think when, if you look at the political side of things, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't matter how well-intentioned the community is. Sometimes it gets overridden by the, the political party at the time.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So I think if I think it's great if they can find other ways of providing both things, increasing the economy, but also protecting the environment and their ways of living
1: yes exactly yes yeah, so that and so i want to explore how to how can we do that and what does that look like and then the other interesting thing is too that they've legal they've legally bought their piece of land their territory oh is that right that's great yeah and they're they're doing and they're like exploring maybe responsible options for mining on their territory in ways right. that will protect that don't destroy their environment and can be used to protect their community so oh, I didn't realize that that's good yeah it's kind of I didn't know fully I'm actually with one of the leaders is stuck here in, in Toronto so I've been trying <laughs> to help them get home so I've had <laughs> I have had the chance to get more of a full update which has been cool yeah so there yeah so it's an interesting model like looking at Like, I think, given that the government would have just, is just kind of sells off these territories if you don't have enough money to legally demarcate your territory. So now they're, like, exploring what could, how could mining possibly benefit them and support their ancestral knowledge and be used to explore what their ancestral science is and then also, yeah, just contribute to their way of life but also protect their community at the same time, so... I'm not sure if it's possible yet, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of the Amazon, because we all know the importance of the Amazon basin, mm-hmm. and this is just one, one part of it. What I mean, I, I guess we can't forecast it too too much, but the worry I would have thought is they can protect their part, but what about the rest of it? If if other communities further down the Amazon basin can't protect theirs, I mean, look, I mean, Brazil's burnt a hell of a lot of the Amazon, and. Mm-hmm things like that so what the amazon does for the world in terms like you said with oxygen and everything else and then all the plant you know the flora and fauna that's in these um in the amazon basin that we're going to be potentially losing even if you can save one small part is that going to be enough to really save
1: of course but i guess that's just looking at does every little bit help, right so i think True. we can do i'll do our part and that's where and i think yeah, there's and there's also really good examples that I hope to look like from my master's thesis, the Kayapo in Brazil, they're actually a very successful model for supporting their livelihoods and preserving their natural territory. And they have their part in the Amazon is the size of Nova Scotia. So okay. and that, yeah, and over since the last, I don't know, the early 90s or something when Sting was first down there. And now, like 30 years later, they, they're they're just like superheroes when they have tons of funding and right. they're, they're really strong in their community and culture. Anyway, so it's kind of expi- – and that's grown and it's like another model. So I think we well, can- I, think
0: I think it's interesting because you've seen already three different models, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um, three different models of differing indigenous peoples who have found ways to try and protect the very fragile landscape that we have as well as protect their culture. Yeah. And and, and and do you see a lot of overlap? I mean, they're three very different areas, but do you see a lot of overlap?
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of the most interesting and coolest part to me about having this window into indige- different indigenous cultures from Canada, just like the few that I've gotten the chance to experience here in Ontario, and also in South America, is there is a lot of, commonalities to me that validate as well the the knowledge and the truth to what is being said in kind of like indigenous ways of knowing like there's i've noticed like this shared use of tobacco that comes from south to north america of its like sacredness the idea of like our ancestors being in the natural world and the idea of so many different kinds of spirits existing so to me i'm like this the shaman that i know that i'm like translating from spanish that's from you know that i'm showing him how to use the bank machine to take out like money or whatever he's like he's not making this up when and then when i'm talking to my friend like bear standing tall or something you know so it's very and then i and then i went into i lived in haiti for a while and then i met with voodoo priests there and again too it was like this idea of love sacred tobacco And then there's also this idea of kind of like a sacrifice, not a self-sacrifice, but um, you have to put yourself through some kind of suffering to get to the other side and learn. Right. So, yeah, to me, that is the coolest thing that there is this truth and this knowledge that we're all, we haven't been listening to for so long.
0: (laughs) And I think we need to start listening to it a little bit more, don't we? Mm -hmm. And I, I think if nothing else, this this pandemic that we're currently in has made some people not everyone sit back and reflect a little bit yeah how can we help balance the world as well as ourselves
1: yeah I think yeah I think that's been the one thing that we've been able to take from this and be like okay at least we're all slowing down a bit spending some time on self-reflection and the world's got like a chance to breathe
0: exactly Mm -hmm. yes it was getting way too fast so how can this work be a part of the decolonial project as you call it
1: ah yes I think I put in the question and I regret it because (laughs) it's such a large one. And I guess I can really only hope that this project can be part of the decolonial project in that it will help empower different ways of knowing and Indigenous knowledge that is just contributing to like show like the wealth of kind of almost this Indigenous science, which is where the two eyed seeing comes into, where it's the non Western perspective and I think that we just have a lot to learn and so just kind of being help, help like I hope that if I do end up creating like a land-based learning course or if we can understand the shora way of living a little bit or people get to experience that then we crack open this new window or this new door in people's minds to start thinking of differently and outside the box.
0: So this this land-based course you're thinking about what level would you be aiming that to? Is it something that you would have at different levels such as elementary and then another one for high school and another one for university?
1: I think for now. Because
0: I think each level is very different, but you could get a, a good message in to each level, couldn't you?
1: Yeah, I think and I, I think probably for the, the metrics of my project, it would be maybe just university-based in that I would hope that, right. that this could be one income source that would support and then you could just kind of break it down to be for tourists or for any other one or like a healing center retreat and just use right. the knowledge created in a different way but then it could also just be geared towards university students and then hopefully we could get some sort of like exchange happening between north and south people. Right. Peace right. Peace Can I
0: ask you one other question too because you've had you've you've had an opportunity to meet some probably incredible people with all your travels Mm -hmm. and and the studies that you've had. Was there anything when you were chatting away that they would prefer not to share?
1: Yeah, so I think that is a very important question. Yeah, definitely that is something that I have to consider. And then I wouldn't say it if if it was. Yes, that's
0: right. I mean, and they would not share it. But I mean, sometimes there's, you know, I know back home there's certain rituals in Australia where you know it's not for the outside world it's it's for it's for the people
1: yeah and I think for me that's kind of the work that's done I do I've done here with my friends in like sweat lodges and different thing where it's not something that I'd put on social media or really, um, I mean, I wrote a really nice article about my experience through a sweat lodge, but yeah, there would be different things where I think you also just need to experience it yourself.
0: And then just keep it to to you and just be thankful that they, they were happy to share with you under, because they trusted you, I guess.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. But I think a large part of my work too, though, has been able to, I've been trying to figure out how to get across the importance of this knowledge and but at the same time being very sensitive (laughs) to what I can Mm -hmm. and cannot share but
0: well I'm totally jealous that you've had a chance to go to these great places and Mm -hmm. see these landscapes and meet these beautiful people (laughs) because not many people would get that opportunity
1: yeah thank you yeah and that's kind of why I've devoted and i've finally gotten to do my p like committed to doing my phd because i've just seen i feel like i have this responsibility from being able to have seen and met such interesting mm-hmm. people that i i have to do my part and what i can um, and, and, share the, and share that and
0: share their generosity in the right way
1: yeah share the generosity and kindness that i know yes the world has to offer <laughs> to ourselves in <laughs> the natural world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we can we can learn so much. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question. It's a little bit outside of your work, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. not. Um, you you get you've written here that you're a part time mediator and peace builder. Mm-hmm. Now, is that all part of what you've learned along the way? And you say so you found yourself a natural mediator and, and peacemaker or peace builder?
1: Uh, it was kind of well. It's actually my like I do part-time work with it so then when I finished my master's I became a certified mediator yeah so I worked doing resolving community disputes or like I worked for the city of Toronto with right. neighborhood bylaw disputes and then yeah people who have workplace ones or I've done I worked with like youth you can do like restorative justice when you right and then yeah I went I got sent down to Haiti to help Basically, create a mediation like right. help install mediation in communities where they don't really have access to the law or justice as a means right. to help resolve that their disputes. Yeah, that was pretty wild. And, and then I just <laughs> finished. And then I did my master's in Ireland. So, and then my my mentor, who's now my part time boss, he was part of the Irish peace process. And right. yeah, and so we do consulting work. Like I helped just finish a project with the EU looking at how right. they could start their next, like how they should. Is this, a, is this
0: the kind of thing you'd want to get onto after you've finished your PhD, getting more into this
1: international work? I mean, it's kind of what I've been doing for, like, I kind of mm. did that. So now I'm a bit more ready to be in Can- Canada. But I kind of, I love speaking other languages right. and getting the chance. Right. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of where I'm half going to is, like, hopefully we could set up something in Ecuador I'd love right. to be working in Brazil. And then I do part time, like how I kind of support myself is through some projects in Ireland for peace building and then also sometimes in Haiti as well. Like I still have connections with the organizations there.
0: So, how many languages do you speak?
1: <laughs> Four. <laughs> but... Oh, I speak one, not very well. <laughs> Yeah, I realized I was very jealous. (laughs) It's a lot easier when you're in the place, and I never learned. Well, that's true here in Canada, but
0: that's very true. Mm -hmm. Well, Martina, that has been fabulous. Mm -hmm. I know I don't know why you ever thought you would be not very good on radio because you (laughs) clearly have a lot to say, and and it's just fascinating what you've been doing. So I take my hat off to you and, and wish you all the best in your in your project.
1: Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> okay, that's very <laughs> encouraging.
0: Well, well, best of luck with all of that. And thank you very much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Colette.
0: And thank you, everyone. That's another show of Grad Chat coming to an end. Now, don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.